the Lord has been gracious to us as we've studied through what it means to be a child of God. You will see that same theme inter, uh, picked up in First Peter as we go through this book also. But I'm excited about our start in the book of First Peter. I am sure that it will be applicable to all of you. I'm sure that we will all be encouraged, uh, especially in light of the circumstances that we all now live in and the things that we're going through right now. How do we thrive in a world that appears to be falling apart around us? That's the question, right? How do we survive in a world that looks like everything around us is crashing down? This book is the book for us. It is a book that's going to encourage all of our souls. Today we start this study of the book of 1 Peter. I promise you that it will encourage every one of you. We will all be exhorted to stand firm through all the enemy's attacks and all the things the world brings into our life. We will be called and exhorted to stand firm. Introductory This is an introductory message, so sometimes introductory messages, you have to understand, are heavy on background information, which means that background information can be a little bit more tedious, so you're going to have to pay attention today, and it might not have quite as much application, but I think it's important for us, because to have an understanding of the book, you need to understand what's going on in the circumstances of the book when it was written. Uh, This is called the historical part of the historical grammatical method of Bible interpretation. What does that mean? When you study your Bible, you read these verses, and often we read these things and we think, oh, that, that, that fits for me, and that verse fits for me. There's a more important question for all of us to ask when we study the Bible. It's this, what did it mean to the original reader? We must start with the historical context. See, we don't know what a passage means unless we know its history, its setting, its background. And if we don't understand its background, then what we're going to do is we're going to apply and use the Bible to say whatever we want it to say. And that's not what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to know what it said and what it meant when it was written by its original writers in its original context. So we've got to have that historical background. So today we're going to focus a little bit more on that background so that we understand what the book means, and how important it is for us. My goal today is to kind of whet your appetite for this book, this extremely encouraging book, so that you'll be reading it. I would challenge you over the next couple of weeks, maybe try to read through it in your own devotion time. Spend time just reading through the book of First Peter. Maybe you read it for 20 or 30 times. That'd be exciting if you did that. You would get a good understanding of the big picture. My hope is is that that's what you will see as we unfold this, and it will encourage all of you. Briefly, let's uh, talk about the setting for the book, uh, the letter itself. It's most likely, or it was most likely written by the Apostle Peter right before or right after the persecution of the Emperor Nero started in 64 AD. Now, just with your math in your head, put that in context, 64 AD Approximately, Jesus died when? 33 A.D., so you're looking at around 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Peter is writing and explaining, hey, how do we deal with this persecution? How do we deal with a 
a government that is very evil and out to get us, and how all the world seems to hate us as Christians. How do we deal with this? So that's your context, as Peter writes, right before or right after a huge persecution breaks out because of Emperor Nero. You know, Emperor Nero most likely was the one that burned down Rome. He did it himself. And the reason why is because he had an obsession with building things. He liked to build things. He would rebuild things and wanted to build things in other cities and decided, well, let's start afresh and burn it all down. But then when he started getting some heat for that, guess what happens? He blamed it on the Christians. Because they were hated by most everybody anyway, so blame it on those that everybody already hates. And what did that do? Persecution broke out in an even greater amount. So, Peter is alluding most likely to this suffering. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 4. He's going to be alluding to this suffering throughout the book. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, we see, he states, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. What do we have here? He's probably alluding to the suffering, the judgment of God that's coming upon the house of God in order to what? Refine it, to help show that it is legit, to see who are the real Christians and who are not the real Christians. Beloved, I think in some ways we might be headed towards a period like that today. So it's going to be very applicable, isn't it? You know, I, I, I recently saw a little a cartoon of how it had two men, or it actually had three men, and the cartoon had one guy was standing here and says, I'm a Christian. And then there was another guy next to him that said something to the effect of, yeah, I kind of I understand what you believe, and I kind of am associated with you. I kind of like what you stand for. And then on the other side, there was this guy saying, I'm not a Christian. I hate God. And the guy in the middle was kind of leaning and siding with that Christian, saying, yeah, I'm with you. And then a little bit later, there's another picture. And the guy in the middle has traded sides, and he's over on the other side with the atheist, screaming at the guy, saying, you're crazy. The guy that was in the middle is most of our America. (laughs) It's the the people that have been in the middle and have often sided with those that were Christians for a long time. But when the tough and when things have gotten worse and secularism has risen, what's happened? The middle guy has gone over to the secularist and guess who's going to get all the fire? The Christian. That's what's happening. There's a time in our country that could be bringing about a refining fire, very much like what happened with the church. For 30 years, people were coming in, coming in, and coming in. Great numbers were coming to Christ. However, there wasn't a lot of persecution. Nero comes on the scene, and guess what? Persecution increases. What's that do? 
It shows who's legit and who's not. This is the setting for our book. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. Peter says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We see, once again, suffering is a part of the Christian life. We talked about this. It's being, it is being endured by our brothers and sisters in the world today also. Just like in Peter's time, there is suffering being accomplished by your brethren. I read an article concerning some believers who were persecuted recently. So, in light of the historical context here, we kind of fit, don't we? The historical context of this book fits our context. And for us to understand this book, it's going to be a lot easier if there was persecution. We're not suffering a lot of persecution right now. But if it did, we're really going to be able to get this, aren't we? But we're going to know. I read an article concerning some believers who were uh, persecuted just recently. Some of you maybe have read about it back on August 7th. Some relatives of persecuted believers said this. Uh, they were persecuted by some ISIS militants. They were captured. The Christian workers in the village whose name is withheld for security reasons, I'm reading, on August 28th, the militants asked if they had renounced Islam for Christianity. When the Christians said they had, the, said that they had, the rebels asked if they wanted to return to Islam. The Christians said they would never renounce Christ. They would never. So the 41-year-old team leader, his young son, and two ministry members in their 20s, were questioned at one village site where ISIS militants had summoned a crowd. The team leader presided over nine house churches he helped. He had helped to establish. His son was two months away from his 13th birthday. Boy, this one hit home, didn't it? He said, quote, All were badly brutalized and then crucified. The ministry leader said, they were left on their crosses for two days. No one was allowed to remove them. The martyrs died beside signs the ISIS militants had put up identifying them as infidels. Or infidels. Eight other ministry team members, including two women, were taken to another site in the village that day and were asked the same question before the crowd. The women ages 29 and 33 tried to tell the ISIS militants that they were were only sharing the peace and love of Christ and asked what they had done wrong to deserve the abuse. The Islamic extremists then publicly sexually abused the women who continued to pray during the ordeal, leading the ISIS militants to beat them all the more furiously. As the two women and the six men knelt before, they were beheaded. They were praying. Villagers said some were praying in the name of Jesus, and others said some were praying the Lord's Prayer, and others said some of them lifted their hands to commend their spirits to Jesus. The ministry director said one of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said, Jesus. Folks, this is the same stuff. This is exactly what kind of abuse was being 
experienced by those during Peter's day. Horrible persecution. Folks, I, I have to confess to you that when I read through 1 Peter, I am challenged. I am confronted. You know why I'm confronted? Because I'm not suffering like these people. And yet, as you read this book, you're, you're confronted with all those little things that we whine about. And he doesn't give them it, he doesn't make it easy. He tells them, stop, submit, endure. And what do we do? Where are my rights? I need to be treated better. Yet here, he's telling them, lay down their rights. In fact, honor the king is one of the phrases that he says in chapter 2. Honor the king. Who is the king? Emperor Nero. Beloved, we have to have a big view of God. We must understand how God views this world. We must know our identity, which is what he focuses on. And as we understand who we are in Christ Enduring in our circumstances by the abiding grace of God becomes easy. It's what we do. So Peter calls the believers to this. Endure in our circumstances by abiding in God's grace. That's the title. That's the point of the whole book. Endure your circumstances by abiding in God's grace. This is the purpose of the letter. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12, it states, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And here's the command. Stand firm in it. That's the whole point of the letter. This is the true grace of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is all that God has provided to us in His unmerited favor. Therefore, what? Stand firm in it. And so as we go through this book, it's, you're going to be called, you're going to be exhorted, you're going to be encouraged. Stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm in who you are in Christ. Stand firm in God's unmerited favor towards you. This is a book that calls the believer to stand firm or endure in your present circumstances by abiding in God's grace, by knowing and enjoying and receiving the grace of God revealed in the glory of the gospel of Christ. And as we go through this book, it's almost like what he does is he tells them, this is the grace of God towards you, now do it. Then he goes a little bit further, this is the grace of God towards you, now trust and obey. This is the grace of God towards you. Now trust and obey. That's the message all the way through. We need this message, folks. We need to be reminded over and over and over just how much God loves us and just how much grace God has poured out on us. For as we understand this grace of God, we will endure our present circumstances. And we'll do it without grumbling and complaining. We'll do it with joy Joy that is inexpressible and full of joy. I was confronted this week from one of my kids. He said, Dad, why are you always sad? Why are you sad, Dad? 
It was Tuesday. And I said, I'm sorry, son. I am grieved by our country. And I'm grieved by the sheep. They're hurting. There's several of them are hurting. <laughs> Lots of people are hurting. He said, Dad, you need to turn off all media. Turn off your phone. Throw away your phone, Dad. Get rid of it. I said, son, I I love these people so much. I'm bearing their burdens. He said, yeah, but dad, you're so sad. There's an element of what he's saying is very confronting to my soul. Because the fact of the matter is, is that there are times that I let the burdens overwhelm me and not focus enough on the grace of God that's provided to me. I need to think and meditate and enjoy the grace of God that's been provided to me. For then I will, I will be burdened by you. That's not going to go away. But I will be burdened with joy. I will trust and abide in the grace of God that's given to me. I need this book. Do you need this book? As I look at the world, it's grieving, isn't it? But I want to know how to deal with it. This book's going to do that. It's going to give us encouragement. It's going to call us to endure. It's going to remind us of who we are in Christ and what we have in Him. That's where our joy is found, beloved. That's where it is. That's why we're going to study this book. Today we're going to examine the three main characters in the epistle. The apostle, the audience... And the authority. And as we go through this, you're going to see very clearly what the setting is for the book. Let's start with the apostle. Notice in verse 1 it states, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ has sent one from the, uh, from Jesus Christ himself. I want to give you a brief character sketch of Peter. Uh, he is a a man that is dear to my heart, near and dear to my heart. I, I would say that out of anybody in the Bible I can think I can associate with most, it's the Apostle Peter. If there was one man I think I'm, I, I, I can see myself in, is especially in his failures, his foot and mouth disease that he had, that's me. I feel him as I make those foolish statements occasionally, even in the sermons like Paul had Facebook. Foolishness, or he would have had Facebook. But beloved, look. Look at the Apostle Peter. What do we have here? Well, first we see, turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Peter went from being a fisherman to a fisher of men. He went from being a fisherman, a fisherman, to a fisher of men. We see this at the beginning of his ministry as he's called by the Lord Jesus. Notice in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 20, it states, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, that is Peter, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Beloved, Peter, 
often gets a bad rap by many, doesn't he? The fact is, none of us would want our best and worst moments of our first three years of walking with the Lord recorded for everyone to see and read. Anybody in here want your first three years, your best and worst moments recorded for everybody to read? None of us, right? Well, here we have the Apostle Peter's calling. And one thing that strikes me about even at the very beginning is what? Well, he's a fisherman. Like I like to fish, too. Uh, he was a fisherman, but more importantly, he left immediately to follow the Lord. There's this attraction to the Lord, no matter what, no matter what he was doing, even his own job. If the Lord called him, come, he, he left immediately. This was a man that was convinced that Jesus was the Christ and he was going to follow him. He goes from a raw follower of Jesus to a humble shepherd, as we will see but look over at Matthew chapter 16, probably the, the one that we talked about and was read first today, probably one of the most important scriptures in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16, we see, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And I love this. Who is the one to speak up? Simon Peter. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter, small rock. Upon this rock, big rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Beloved, we see from a very early time, Peter gets it. He knows Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He boldly proclaims it. And Jesus affirms God's special revelation to Peter. There's a, 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 an important note here for us to note. And that is, why is Peter who he is? Why did Peter become that apostle Peter that everybody begins to look up to? Why? Because God revealed his son to him. It was God who stepped into Peter's life and showed him just who he is. That's an important thing for us to remember as we look out at the world that we live in. Because often, I don't know about you guys, but we can also begin to think highly of ourselves, can't we? We can begin to think, well, why do people act like that? And why do they talk like that? Do you understand the reason why you don't? If you don't, it's because God revealed himself to you too. See, it's only by the grace of God that we know this glorious Savior. Same way with Peter. He gets it. He, was, he got it because God revealed it to him. Jesus then affirms the truth that Peter knew. Not saying that Peter, like the Catholics say, that Peter would then be the first pope and it would go on from there. 
but that the message that Peter understood, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that would be the foundation for all that they did. A matter of fact, by having that foundation of who Christ is and what He has done, God's grace, the whole church would be built on it. By understanding God's grace through the Messiah and the Son of the living God's work, we will then what? Endure. And that's exactly what He's doing right here. We see it at the very beginning. Jesus is saying, look, listen to me. You have the keys of heaven. What is the keys of heaven? It's the message of Jesus Christ. You have the way for people to come to know Him. It's the glorious gospel, the grace of God. You have that. So you will share it. But notice it was to be waited to be revealed until after His death, burial, and resurrection. So, as Peter often did, after a great moment, his success, his victory, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then, within just a few verses, a few moments later, it's foot and mouth disease. Look at verse 21. (laughs) This is the one that wrote our epistle that we're going to be studying. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. They rebuke Jesus? The Christ, the Son of the living God. And said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. What's the point? The point is is that Peter had a plan. Peter had a desire. He wanted what? He wanted a nice, smooth pass, and he wanted the Christ to set up his kingdom and do it now. And I want it to look good here. And I want to be what? I want to be safe, happy, and healthy. And I want you to be safe, happy, and healthy. Oh, beloved, do you think Peter got it? Oh, yeah, Peter got it. And you know, it's really interesting that the very thing, the very thing that Jesus corrects him 30 years earlier... He then, in First Peter, turns around and tells us what? It's not about here. It's not about here. This is not your kingdom here. This is not your home. It's about Christ. It's about Him. It's about exalting Him. Don't fall for Satan's traps. He says this in First Peter. Why? Because he knew it. He lived it. Some of our greatest experiences... And our walks with the Lord are some of the best counsel that we have for our brothers and sisters. Isn't that true? God uses our mistakes, our blunders, our failures, our mess-ups to then turn around and help us to encourage our brothers and sisters to endure in the grace of God. Stand firm. And that's exactly what Peter does here. That's what he does in this book. Look over at John chapter 13. I love this. John chapter 13, right before Jesus is to die. 
Jesus has just washed Peter's feet. <laughs> Humble, right? <laughs> the God-man washed feet. What do you think that should do to the follower? If you see the God-man wash your feet, what, do you, what should it do? It should humble you, right? You should be beyond humble. You should be like, oh, oh boy, I'm in trouble. But look at what Peter says in verse 36. After Judas has been dismissed, the betrayer has been dismissed, and having washed feet and done the Lord's Supper, Simon Peter said to him in verse 36, 1336, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And what happens? He does it. Oh, folks, every time I read and think on Peter's life, I am humbled and reminded, this is me. How many of you, oh, I hear this, especially in new Christians, often they will come up and they say, man, I'm all in. I'll do whatever Jesus wants me to do. I love the excitement. I love the passion. And then I think, oh, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be hard. And I think to myself, how many times have I thought, oh, I have victory over all those things. I'm all set. All to see myself fall right back down in the mud, face down in the mud going, I'm a failure. I blew it again. Beloved, if you think you're not like Peter, if you think you're not like him, you are him. We are all Peter. We're all susceptible to this. If you are great at judging everyone else and saying, not me, you are him. That's exactly what he said. And he fell face down on his face, didn't he? So what does God do with people like that? (laughs) He writes epistles through them 30 years later. Oh, that's encouraging, isn't it? He's all about giving grace to those whom he has humbled. (laughs) Crucial. Obviously, Peter falls miserably that very night. But Jesus appeared after his resurrection and appears to Peter himself. Peter sees him on the very first night of his resurrection. There's a time, 40 uh, 40 days, where Jesus appears to his disciples every once in a while. Not every, every day all the time, but he would appear to them. He appeared to over 500. Peter gets a bad rap, as I said, for... For the following phrase, but look over at John chapter 21. But I think it's wrong, really, to give him a wrong, a bad rap on this one. I don't think, I don't think Peter's sinning here. Some of you might disagree with me. But I just don't think there's enough information for us to write him off 
I think Peter isn't being rebellious here or wicked because Jesus doesn't even rebuke him for the statement. In fact, he gives him some fish, even though it's a long night. But I love this little phrase. Simon Peter said to them, it's after the resurrection. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Favorite phrase in the Bible. They said to him, we also will come with you. Fellowship and fishing, two great things. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. <laughs> that would be me. Yes. But what do we see? Jesus comes to them and blesses them with this huge catch of fish, right? And Peter recognizes Jesus from the shore, and he what's he do? He strips off his cloak and jumps in and swims to shore. And you don't see Jesus up on the shore going, You blew it. Why are you out fishing, Peter? In fact, he has more, what, fish up on shore, cooked. And they carry in a whole bunch more fish. What is Peter, or what's Jesus doing? Jesus is doing that beautiful thing that Jesus does. He takes his disciples and he gives them hugs and encourages them and exhorts them and calls them back to their duty and says, Look, I'm alive now. Get busy. Go take care of my sheep. Look what he says. Look, it's a beautiful passage. In John chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape love me? He said to him, or he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo have a great dear endearing affection for you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo love me? Peter said, was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you phileo love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. You know what this is? This is a shepherd that is now ready. Why? Because he was humbled. He understand it. His commitment, his sacrificial commitment to him was not near what he thought. And in light of that, in light of the love that he had saw with Christ dying on the cross, it paled in comparison, really. He was humbled. But what did that mean? He was prepared to then what? Shepherd people. And Jesus was constantly saying, look, I know who you are. I know who you are. I know your commitment level is just a man's commitment level. But I love you. I love you. Now shepherd my sheep. Guess what he does, beloved? He uses that same phrase when he talks to the under shepherds in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, shepherd my sheep. Shepherd his sheep. Shepherd the sheep. Same thing. Peter was humbled. And Jesus affirms then Peter's calling. Beloved, that's the place we all need to start, right? We all need to start there. Are we humbled? 
or do we think we're better than everybody else? Are we judging other people because they don't do what we want them to do and think like we want them to think? Then we're not ready, beloved. If you think you're better than someone else, then you're not ready to shepherd the other sheep. Disciples of Christ know we are what? But dust. That's all we are. We're nothing without Christ. But God gives grace to the humble, doesn't he? I need this message. How about you guys? Notice, Jesus continues and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he was saying, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Now you think, wow, that's amazing. What does Jesus tell him here? He tells him, guess what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're going to go where you wish you didn't want to go. You're going to, it's probably pointing to, you're going to be crucified. So what do you think the humbled Peter says? (laughs) What what would be your response? Well, he still was maturing (laughs) and still growing. Look what happens in 20 to 23. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Who's that? That's John. That's the one that's writing the Gospel of John. He's writing it, by the way, roughly 30 years after what? Peter had died. 60 years after. He's writing this Gospel 60 years after Jesus died. So John's writing this and explaining what? Jesus told it. Peter was going to die. Peter, turning around, saw John, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is this that betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? (laughs) It's like John's thinking, I'm glad he asked, right? wonder what's going to happen to me. What was the point, though? Why was Peter thinking that way? His eyes were off of what? His eyes, even at that moment, had stopped looking at the Lord and trusting in Him. It was like, what about Him? Jesus said to him, If I want Him to remain until I come, what is that to you? What's the call? Follow me. It's almost the same thing as what? Stand firm. Oh, beloved, get this. This is very important. How many of you go through trials and difficulties? Right? And when you go through those trials or difficulties, or you see those trials or difficulties in life, what do you have a tendency to do? What about him? Why do I have to go through this? What about him? What does the Lord say to you? Follow me. Stand firm. Oh, beloved, we need to learn this lesson, don't we? All too often... We take our circumstances and we allow our circumstances to crush us. Instead of getting our eyes firmly fixed on the author and perfecter of faith, 
We look at everybody else and we say, why is my life not as good as that person over there? If you want to compare, look up the Christians that are dying by ISIS, at ISIS hands over in the Middle East. Compare them to them. We have to be careful of this comparing thing going on. We all need to focus our attention on the one who saves and sanctifies all of us. We need to trust in him. And by the way, if at this moment you're thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here so they could hear that, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. Or if at this moment you're saying to yourself, but pastor, you don't know what I'm going through. You might be missing the same point too. Beloved, focus your eyes on Christ. He is the one. It's the grace of God that He gives to each and every one of His children. He loves us. Stand firm. Stand firm. Peter was a work in progress, wasn't he? So are we. Every one of us, a work in progress, aren't we? However, we know through our study of the book of Acts, after Peter, after Pentecost, Peter is totally transformed and he begins to speak out boldly. In fact, later taking a beating and then worshiping and considering it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. How many of us look like this? How many of us think like this? Oh, I need to be transformed more. How about you? I need to know the grace of God better, don't you? I need to apply it to my life. So roughly 30 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead, Peter writes this letter to predominantly Gentiles, Gentile believers in the area what is today modern-day Turkey. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Peter writes from most likely Rome, and he writes back to that area of Gentile believers. And Peter says in verse 5, in 13, 513, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends your, you greetings, and so does my son Mark. The idea is, is that he's in Babylon. Now, y'all know as well as I do, all of us know that Babylon was what? An empire in the Old Testament that what? Died. It, it was crushed, right? By the Medo-Persians, Right? Okay, so what's he referencing? Most likely this is a reference to Rome. He was in Rome. Why is that important? Well, because that's where he's going to die, in Rome. He's there and he's writing back from Babylon, telling about, telling these Christians that are under persecution, probably with a a good understanding that persecution is what? It's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. Because he was where Nero was. Most commentators understand that Paul is speaking of Rome here. Tradition says that within just a few years of writing First and Second Peter, Peter watched his wife be crucified. Then he was crucified. And the tradition says that he, was, he said he was not worthy to be crucified like his Lord, so he asked to be crucified upside down. Tradition says that that's how he was crucified. What do we have? 
We have a man transformed by the gospel of grace. And that man that's transformed by the gospel, gospel of grace that didn't deny the Lord when came time again, what made the difference? It was the grace of God. He understood it. And so what did he then do? He proclaimed that grace of God to us. He proclaimed that grace of God to these people who were going to face persecution. And before he died, Peter wrote First Peter So it's encouraging for us to study this book, to see how we live by the grace of God in our circumstances. And notice he tells the elders, verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Do you see that's undergirding everything? He understands the sufferings of Christ. And partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, a hope in heaven. Shepherd the flock of God among you. What's he tell them to do? The very same thing that Jesus told him to do. After seeing Christ suffer and rise for him. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Oh, beloved, do you see, isn't this, I can't wait to study this book with you. Are you ready to study it? I want to know it. I want to understand it. I want it to be deep in my soul so I'll live in a way that's different. That I'll be an example to you, and you will be examples to other sheep. That's what we want to be, right? How many of you want to be like Christ? And you want to be an example, right? Okay, then when the trials and suffering of the world come into your life, what should we do? See them for what they are. An opportunity to exalt Christ. This is the book. The sheep of the chief shepherd had become an under-shepherd. One of the sheep, one of the sheep of the chief shepherd had become an under-shepherd. And that's what he is. So let's look at the second one. Go back to the beginning of verse 1. We see the audience. I might make it through this book in 10 years. We'll get, we'll get the first two. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. Oh, beloved, this is an... Last time I preached this from a pulpit, this verse from the pulpit, it, it got me in a lot of trouble. We started Grace Bible Church because of this. <laughs> uh, but we're going to dig in. Peter encourages the believers with his introductory description here, right? He gives three main identifying marks of his audience. These features are common for all believers, all of us. Let's look at these three real briefly. First, we are chosen aliens. We are chosen aliens. Uh, What is a, a chosen alien? To be 
chosen or a selected, that last, who are chosen. This is obviously referring to God's gracious choice. Do you understand that if you're a believer in Christ, it's only because God chose you. You're only a part of that group because God did the choosing. He picked you. As 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 states, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Oh, beloved, we are chosen to do that. Why, why do you believe? The answer is real simple. God did it. Is it because you deserved it? No, you were in darkness. Were you good? No, you were bad. You were evil. Why did he choose you? Grace. Why is that important? Well, because grace humbles us all, doesn't it? God's sovereign grace humbles us all. It makes us look at the world totally different, doesn't it? Today, we were, the, the guys were talking in the Psalms a little bit about imprecatory prayers. Beloved, listen to me. I'm afraid that all too often we want to whip out the imprecatory prayers after we've forgotten just how gracious God is to have even chose us. I want you to understand what I mean by that. David got it. David understood. I'm not worthy of God's choosing. He was humbled by that grace. So when he calls out for God's judgment... He calls out for God's glory to be on display, not his own. Not because he thinks he's better than those around us. See, do you understand, if we understand the grace of God, it humbles you by, to even those that are persecuting you. Oh, this is so important. That's why we have to start here. How do you deal with persecution without saying, this isn't fair? Or picking up a sword to try to kill them. How do you deal with it? You must understand your identity. You must understand that you're chosen by God's grace alone. That you don't, you're not better than those that are persecuting you. I know we don't live in a culture like that, do we? Does our world look around and say, I'm just like the ones hurting me? It says the opposite, doesn't it? It says, I'm better. Have y'all not been blown away by the hypocrisy in what we see in politics? It's unbelievable hypocrisy on both sides. Everybody's a hypocrite. Everybody. Why? Because they think they're better than their opponent. You must understand you are chosen aliens. If you understand you're a chosen alien, you won't look at your world and say, I'm better than you. You will say, I'm chosen. Grace. You see how this just humbles, this just takes away all divide, doesn't it? Oh, folks, we need to understand we're chosen. Second, we are sojourning. Aliens. We're staying for a while in a strange and foreign place. We're residing temporarily. We're not here. This isn't our home. You understand that. 
beloved. Do you really understand that? We got a lot of young people in this church. And I'll never forget when I was single and the desire to get married was like heavy upon me. Oh, I really want to get married. And then when I got married, it was like, oh, I really want children. Oh, I really want a house. And oh, I really want another child. And oh, I really want a good job. And oh, I want a nice car. Two cars. Do you understand? You know the problem with that? That was my first three years of walking with Jesus, by the way. You know what my problem was? This was my home. This was my home. This is about here, now, what I can have. Peter says, no, you're an alien, you're a stranger, you're a sojourner. You're just residing here temporarily. This is not your home. Talk to a couple of you guys. Open your hands. The stuff you got in your hands are not yours anyway. It's God's. If you don't open your hands, he's going to rip your hands open if he's your child. And he's going to take it from you. If, he's your chi- if you're his child. Beloved, we're just sojourning aliens. And finally, we're scattered aliens. They are, especially they were scattered. This idea of a farming illustration of taking seed and just kind of throwing it out into an open field. How much ground did that seed cover? Well, it covered a lot. But it also was only a small piece and then you're surrounded by what? A bunch of soil. Do you understand this picture of scattered implies what? They were all by themselves to a degree. They were small little house churches of people spread out over an area with a bunch of unbelievers. This should change the way we look at the world we live in, right? Do you understand that as you drive home, you're going to be driving by thousands probably of people that don't know and don't love God? Do you understand that there are millions? I did research. Do you understand that if you went with professing Protestant believers, professing believers, we're still only 10% of the population of the entire earth? 10%. And you all know that the Protestant... That includes everybody that even denies the Bible. That's every Protestant, anybody. Do you understand that it could very well be that we're only five, five or six percent of the whole world's population? Again, beloved, we, underst- we need to first understand that it is only by the grace of God that we're saved. It's only by the grace of God that we're chosen. We also need to understand that this is our only our temporary residence. And finally, we need to understand that the world around us needs the gospel and that we need to stop expecting them to be us without the gospel. We need to share the gospel more, don't we? 
Then you do research and you find out that it's almost always been this way. From the beginning of the church, do you know after 100 years after Jesus had died, rose from the dead, that it was only 5% of the population were professing Christians? 5% of the world's population, 100 years after Christ. It hasn't changed that much, folks. Why does the way that leads to destruction, many go that way? Narrows the way that leads to eternal life, few find it. So if you have found that way, which is Christ Jesus, what does that say to you? God has been gracious to me. It should humble us, right? Oh, folks, we need, we need Christ, don't we? We need this book. Let's close there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in your word. We pray that you will help us to understand just who we are in Christ. Lord, we pray that you will help us to remain humble. Lord, please help us to abide in you. Abide in the grace of God that you've given us. Father, we are sinners in need of a Savior. Thank you that you have called us out of our sin and out of the darkness into your marvelous light. Help us now to proclaim the excellencies of you who called us. Thank you, Father. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, but you are now working on their hearts here, we pray that they will turn to you today, that you will work in their hearts and cause them to see the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Help them, Father. We love you. We pray now, Lord, as we go into our time of fellowship too, any that stay, we pray, Lord, that you will help us to edify one another and encourage one another. Be humble towards one another and exalt Jesus Christ with everything we say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.